Okay, well, turn with me, if you haven't already, to Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. As I said, Romans 12, 17 through 21. We'll look there in just a moment. Uh, you know, last week, if you tuned in, you know that I made a little bit of a departure from uh, our Philippian series. Well, really quite a departure. Not only a departure uh, from that series, but it might be helpful for those who... Um, aren't regularly a part of our fellowship to know um, a departure from just my normal pattern of things. And we're talking about the election and just sort of political concerns. Those are certainly on just about everybody's mind and, and pressing in on us like other things are. Um, but a departure from my normal pattern or from our normal series, just to, to speak uh, really more in the direction of what I wanted to talk about today, and that's the post-election period and perhaps the unrest that awaits us and how we can prepare ourselves to uh, live well and honorably as Christ's ambassadors in um, that season of life we're getting ready to enter. But in last week's uh, message, I said, you know, that as believers, there are, if we're just sort of uh, skimming the surface of sort of moral concerns in the scriptures, that there were four um, that in some way, shape, or form, we could probably agree that we bring these interests with us into the public domain as we live, and including into the sort of political arena. And those were championing religious freedom, uh, promoting marriage and family, protecting life, and then caring for the poor, needy, and marginalized. As a matter of fact, I might even say, if you didn't watch this last week, it might even be more helpful for you to just pause right now and go back and see that one before you come here. They're not, they're not entirely dependent upon each other, but it at least provides uh, context, or, or, or maybe this one even provides context for that one. Um, so I wanna, I wanna continue that um, sort of part, it's sort of part two of that. Um, again, a little bit independent and stands alone in its own respect. But um, in light of the fact that we are just living certainly as the word is overused in 2020 in unprecedented times and in, in probably in many ways this election uh, and its aftermath might be unprecedented in our lifetime. Um, we want to consider how God is going to prepare us to, uh, to represent Jesus well in that season. And so let's look at what Romans 12, 17 through 21 have to offer us in the way of God. And so I'll invite you, if you're able to stand and honor the reading of God's word, as we really do listen to what God has to say to us, uh, it is, that is always important, but we have lots of other voices in our head right now. We've got our own voice a lot of times shouting in our head and shouting out of our mouth. What does God had to say to us out of his word uh, in this season. He says, beginning in verse 17, listen to the word of the Lord. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him, some, give him something to drink. 
for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we are always thankful for your word. We open it always knowing that it has something vital to say to us. And God, we want to open our ears and hearts to hear and receive from it, not only instruction and wisdom on a human level that would somehow compare or compete with uh, other books of wisdom, but Lord, that we would open ourselves to receiving from this book as a unique book, uh, the one true written word of God that is living and active and powerful, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut um, to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of our heart. So Lord, would you get there this morning into the very innermost part of our being and minister the truth of your word in power to speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as with last week's message, I'm going to try to speak pastorally into this election and post-election season. As I said, really quite a departure for me, um, but, but it is sort of the elephant in the room, one, of, uh, one among several. As I think I said sometime back, uh, lots of elephants. It's a parade of elephants in the room these days, but it is on everybody's uh, mind. But, but I say I want to speak pastorally to the subject because I didn't really approach this um, in the typical way as a, uh, as a sermon, as I would normally preach a passage. I'm not really going to preach this passage of Scripture the way I ordinarily would as such. I just want to skim from it um, a couple of governing principles just right off of the surface uh, that would give us some guidance about how we're to live as God's people in this hour. Uh, this is the passage you may have noticed that immediately precedes the one we read last week from Romans 13, the first four verses of that. That passage was about how we're to submit to the governing authorities. You remember I said that um, while it's speaking about our submission to governing authorities, it says that the purpose of those governing authorities are instituted by God to promote good and to restrain evil. And so we sort of play a part in relationship to governing authorities, part of that relationship being one of submission to those authorities. This passage immediately preceding it is about how we're to treat everybody else. So we relate to the, to the governing authorities in a submissive posture. Um, we relate to everyone else with a loving and peaceable and gracious posture as we just read uh, part of uh, actually this a larger passage uh, that begins in, in verse 9. And it's interesting to note that in the ESV, and some of you are not necessarily reading out of the ESV, but in the English Standard Version, the heading of this section, the larger section beginning in verse 9, is marks of the true Christian. Uh, it, that struck me somehow this, this week. Um, 
that, that it was headed that way. Because for most of us to use, to use language that says such and such describes a true Christian is a little bit dangerous to put, you know, sort of put ourselves in, in judgment of that. Of course, the, the translators of the scriptures are saying, this is what God says are the marks of true believers. Now, um, that, those headings are not part of the original text. Paul did not have a heading when he, when he wrote this letter to the church at Rome. But to the extent that the translators got that right, and I think it is a fair summary of what we read here, that he's saying this is the way uh, Christians ought to live. In fact, that whole uh, this verses or chapters 12 through 16 really talk about the practical outworkings of all the theologies outlined in the first um, 11 chapters. But if that's true, if, if this is a fair summary to say these are the marks of a true Christian, here's actually one of the implications for us in our day. That whether or not we are truly Christian will be better measured not by how we vote, but on how we treat others after all the voting is done. Shall I say that again? Uh, whether or not we're truly Christian will be better measured not by how we vote, but by how we treat others after all the voting is done. I say that, of course, because pretty much every election, uh, people start talking this way, either explicitly or implicitly, about how a Christian will vote. Uh, one of my hopes this morning is to uh, disarm that tendency <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and to help sort of create cultivate some understanding. I want us to consider how followers of Jesus can live peaceably with all people in this, in this uh, election season, as it says there in verse 18. In fact, that would be the verse of this passage that I'm really centering on. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. How can we do that in this post-election season? So I'm, I'm aiming today for a level of understanding, not at all for persuasion. I'm not trying to convince anybody uh, of any position, particularly that's going to decide their uh, vote, especially because so many people have already voted. If that were my aim, I should have done uh, that weeks ago. But that's not my aim at all, really, is just to, to develop a, a measure of understanding. And, and I will, in the, in the course of that, be, be candid about some things. Uh, or straightforward as we just talk about, um, you know, some of these issues. My goal, though, is not to be inflammatory. Now, I don't know if that's even possible, to be candid about politics, especially in 2020, without being uh, inflammatory. That is going to be my goal, though, this morning. And so uh, in order for us to live peaceably with all people in the months ahead, and, I, and I'd say in order for us to really make it our priority, our real aim above all aims, to live peaceably with all in the months ahead. We'll need to do two things at least. Uh, one is anticipate the chaos and confusion. Two, understand three different kinds of evangelical voters. So uh, let, let me take it under those two headings and I'll be, I, I think, relatively brief maybe on both uh, points. But, but number one, we need, we need to anticipate chaos and confusion. I think some are 
um, anticipating this. Maybe, frankly, some are anticipating this to a chicken little degree. Uh, they're expecting the sky is going to be falling or whatever and, um, and, and might in their minds be overplaying it. Maybe they're, maybe not. Maybe they're the ones who are playing it accurately or whatever, but I think there, there might be some anticipating uh, more of that than is deserved. But I think lots of people have some awareness of this. But based on what I've read from some, um, some other people, uh, I'll mention three things that are suggested as likelihoods uh, in this election and then the weeks and months following the election. Likelihood number one is that we, we won't know the winner on election night. That's almost certain, I think, because of the mail-in ballot, uh, the numbers of mail-in ballots that are possible or likely. I don't know, folks who work in kind of election uh, centers and that sort of thing and are closer to that process may know to what extent that's still an accurate prediction. Lots of people are just voting in person early. That may actually reduce the number of mail-in votes. I don't know what the, the up-to-date uh, projections on those numbers are, but basically what the conversation has been. Because of that, uh, if for no other reason than because of that, we're not likely to know the winner on election night. Now again, that's, I think, helpful to just have your expectations set right, even going into the election. The second likelihood is that the election may swing from one apparent winner, winner to another uh, from election night uh, to the weeks after the election. I don't, I don't know that I said that very clearly. But it may, it may on election night appear that one candidate is the winner. And then in, in the days and weeks following the election, it actually may swing the other direction. What I've read and heard from a couple of different uh, people has been that to be more specific, if that were to play out, um, the, the, the predictions would be it would be more likely for on election night for Donald Trump to be the apparent winner. But because surveys have suggested uh, it's a, a higher percentage or a greater number of, of Biden supporters or registered Democrats or whatever the uh, sort of metrics of that are, but a, a greater number of those supporters who are, are likely to, to vote through mail-in ballot, that the that what we would expect then is that more Biden votes are going to come in after the election. That's what people who know about such things are saying. So um, you don't have to take my word for it. Matter of fact, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take my own word for this. <laughs> I'm reading this from other places. But what I'm saying is um, that's, that's helpful to know, even to expect, so that, so that if that's the way things play out, and things are going just as planned, if you will, that it doesn't seem like something nefarious is going on or whatever. That's just uh, what, what even people are predicting is likely to happen. So that's the second. So we won't know the winner on election night, most likely. It's very possible the election may appear uh, to have one winner on election night, but it may swing the other direction uh, after the election. The third likelihood is that the losing side is going to contest the election for whatever variety of reasons. The, the, the candidates and their supporters may have slightly different reasons. It seems to me likely, based on the way public dialogue 
is going, if we can call it dialogue, <laughs> the way public discourse is going about such things is that supporters on either side are likely to allege uh, that the election's been stolen, it's fraudulent, um, you know, you know, the, I don't even have to tell you what I'm talking about. You know the kinds of things that there are uh, people, dead people voting or people voting more than once or uh, that kind of thing. You throw in the possibility of international interference in the election, um, which there's been news about this week. Uh, it is, it seems quite likely that the election's going to be contested. And, and it seems to me uh, that's probably true whether the election's close or whether it's a landslide. So if it's close, people will be arguing that, be arguing that it's been tweaked one direction or the other by, again, sort of underhanded means. If it's a landslide, the other side will be going, there's no way there was a landslide. Uh, this was a close race or whatever. So in other words, it seems like to me, uh, no matter how that goes, we're likely to have allegations um, of fraud and distrust about the election results. I, I hope that that's not true. But we can imagine that well, that's kind of how 2020 has gone about a variety of things. There's been a lot of unrest about things in general. And, um, and it seems very, very likely that that would happen. And if we imagine in our heads how that might play out just in the streets in the way of protests and, and uh, riots and that kind of thing, as we've seen in elections in um, elections past and as we've seen again this year. Now, again, my reason for going there is, is not to induce fear. It's actually the very opposite of that. It's sort of like, I mean, I'm making a really loose analogy, but when Jesus describes things that will precede his return, you know, the end of the age, he basically he says, when you see these things, you'll know the end is near. Um, and so, again, by real loose analogy, what I'm saying is, if we see these things, we'll just know, oh yeah, this is how it was going to go. This is how we expected it was going to go. And rather than being fearful of that, we just, um, we just figure out how should we be postured in relationship to that. Um, that we, we, uh, we, do, we don't need to be surprised if that happens. We don't need to be dismayed. We don't need to be fearful but we can position ourselves to be peacemakers and paramedics, so to speak. Paramedics um, exist as, a, as an occupation. People are paramedics for the purpose of responding to emergencies, right? Emergencies don't cause them fear, generally speaking. Actually, there might be plenty of situations they, they run into that are a little bit fearful, and a little bit dangerous and that sort of thing. But when the emergency happens, they run toward it because that's, that's who they are and that's what they do. Firefighters are the same way. Police officers are the same way. We, we might want to kind of adjust our mental framework and our orientation to say, as the church, as, as Jesus' ambassadors in this world, uh, we, want to, we want to prepare ourselves, position ourselves to be paramedics running into an emergency as peacemakers. Jesus said in Matthew 5 in the, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers. I wonder how seriously we take him. Uh, and if we do take him seriously, now would be a really good time to prepare ourselves 
to live as peacemakers in a really uh, turbulent world that may be awaiting us. So we want to just anticipate the chaos and confusion, that we're not surprised or, or unsettled by that, but that rather we are expecting a sort of quote-unquote emergency to arise and we'll be the personnel on the scene um, to minister grace and peace to people. The second thing I said we'll, we'll need to do in order to live peaceably with all people is to live peaceably with one another in the family of God. And that requires us to understand three different kinds of evangelical voters. And so I'm going to show this graphic on the screen, uh, which is a chart from the Pew Research Forum. Uh, it's on your screen. I'm going to try to get it in front of me. This was done recently. I actually didn't uh, note the exact date of the survey, but this is, this is quite recent. And what you'll see is this, this talks about uh, different Christians, Christian voters and their choices and motivations on voting for president. We're going to center on that middle line there, um, which is white evangelicals. And that is not all of us, um, but it's the majority of us, uh, overwhelmingly, right? And, and this, this, is, this is probably representative of um, uh, churches like ours. And basically what that says, if you, if you kind of follow the legend, um, there, are, there are four different sort of categories of voters given here. I'm going uh, to sort of break that down into three. But it says that 57% as these, this recent survey of evangelical, white evangelical voters, 57% are, are uh, labeled as Trump voters for Trump. That is, they're voting for Trump because they're for Trump, okay? 20% uh, are Trump voters against Biden. They're voting for Trump because they're voting against Biden. 5% uh, are Biden voters for Biden. And 13% are Biden voters against Trump. So you can kind of glance at that for uh, a moment if you need to pause and study it, you can. Um, th this, is not, this is not maybe particularly news. And, you know, we heard the figure from back in 2016, 81% of evangelicals voted for Trump. This is predicting 77% of white evangelicals will. Um, that, as we know, two weeks, 10 days in an election year is a long time. 10 days in 2020 is like... I mean, 10 weeks or something. A lot, a lot can happen and probably will. And so any of those numbers could adjust, I suppose, you know, up or down. Um, but, it, but it says, again, I think what we probably have some awareness of, that this is kind of how it breaks down uh, in this election. We could drill down and talk about that at more length. I'm not going uh, to talk about the percentages themselves and those uh, labels themselves so much. But it says, I think from that, hey, here's, here's actually one other thing I would just sort of, I'll just make this as a sort of a footnote. You can consider the relevance of this. But if you'll notice also on this chart down at the bottom is black Protestant Christians. Uh, and their voting preferences swing exactly the opposite direction. So you've got white evangelicals, 77% for Trump, black Protestants, 90% for Biden. 
Um, I, would, I would just suggest to us, whatever you think about that, um, that categorizing people's voting choices very uh, too, too quickly as Christian and non-Christian um, might be uh, a, little, a little dangerous, if you will, considering how those votes are also divided um, along racial lines. In other words, it, there, there might be other motivations worth understanding uh, rather than just what we think of as being Christian or non-Christian categories. And that's part of what I'm after, as I said, is understanding here. So I, I want to I take that and sort of break them out under three headings. These are really imperfect, imprecise in themselves, um, but for us to sort of understand who's in our midst, perhaps, um, that there are three kinds of evangelical voters. Uh, one is those who are voting based on platform, I'm going to say. Okay? And this is uh, what, the, what the Pew Forum chart suggests is that most of the people listening right now, if you're part of our evangelical church, if you're uh, on Sunday morning as we gather together, most of the people in the room, statistically, this would predict, are Trump voters. And so part of, part of what I'll say is I'm not going to try to explain a whole lot of the reasoning, uh, the motivation of those individuals because it's most of the people in the room, okay? Um, but individuals have different reasons for voting that way, but... And as I said, my, my characterization as it, uh, of it as voting based on platform doesn't apply to every, every individual. But I, but I think what, what it boils down to ultimately um, is that sort of you draw out the thought decision-making diagrams and it's sort of all thought processes for this block of voters lead to vote Republican. Um, based on uh, their convictions that... Uh, the Republican platform is most aligned with those Christian values that we hold and, and uh, we feel like this is the party where we have a seat at the table or a voice in the conversation or whatever the case may be. But uh, voting based on platform. Predominantly over the last few decades, the, for many, the singular issue of abortion. That's really been the issue in the minds of a lot of, a lot of people. The, the, the relevance of some particular points on the platform have expanded or contracted in different election cycles. But, but here's, the, here's the caution there, I would say. Uh, this is really a caution to all of us, no matter our sort of political persuasion, is as Colossians 2.8 says, uh, do not be taken captive by the vain philosophies of men. Okay, so we all have to have some kind of governing political philosophy in our head. Even if we're not all that conscious of it, we have some political philosophy that governs our voting decisions and so forth. We, we need to have that. We just need not be taken captive by it. And, and part of what that means is we have to distinguish between what is, what is Christian and what's just ideological. Ideological meaning the set of political ideas that we have. Um, some of the views and values we bring to political thoughts and decisions are, are Christian ideas and values. Some of them are just ideological. And what's happened is because, because this large percentage of 
white evangelicals have identified uh, the Republican Party platform as being the one that's most consistent with their Christian values. Uh, along the way, we began to treat uh, the Republican platform as the Christian platform. And so, the, again, there's just a caution here to say, let's don't be taken captive by the philosophies of men. Let's distinguish between what's Christian and what's just ideological. I'll say as a sort of point of, uh, I don't know, illustration of this, I've, I have gotten voter guides in the mail. You know, we see them distributed, uh, you know, at church sometimes. What's interesting is some of those voter guides, depending on who's publishing, you'll see the list of issues will change a little bit every four years. Because some of them are Christian issues and some of them are just partisan issues. And they get conflated on the voter guide. Uh, so one of the ones I received in the mail recently, um, uh, maybe half of them, it was purportedly uh, sort of delivered to people of faith. Um, maybe half of them had anything to do with faith. And, and the others just didn't. Now again, uh, you, you and I may agree with all the others as well, but let's make the distinction between what's Christian and what's just um, ideological. But we have voters voting on the basis of platform, and that's a large majority of those in our fellowship. The second group would be those I've described as those who are voting based on character. Again, an overgeneralization on my part, but let me try to, uh, I don't know, illuminate perhaps. I think many of us understand this on a certain level um, anyway, but, but let's let this resolution be uh, an illustration of how these voters might think about voting issues. This is uh, what's going to be here on your screen, a resolution on moral character of public officials or something like that, I think it reads. But it says, I'm, I'm, I'm actually pulling only excerpts from this, okay? But you'll see this on your screen. Whereas some journalists report that many Americans are willing to excuse or overlook immoral or illegal conduct by unrepentant public officials so long as economic prosperity prevails. And whereas tolerance of serious wrong by leaders sears the conscience of the culture, spawns unrestrained immorality and lawlessness in society, and surely results in God's judgment. Therefore, be it resolved that we affirm that moral character matters to God and should matter to all citizens, especially God's people, when choosing public leaders. And be it finally resolved that we urge all Americans to embrace and act on the conviction that character does, not, uh, does count in public office and to elect those officials and candidates who, although imperfect, demonstrate consistent honesty, moral purity, and the highest character. Um, that, was, that may sound familiar to some of you. That resolution was passed by the Southern Baptist Convention in 1998. Uh, that was when Bill Clinton was president. In fact, that particular meeting was right around the Monica Lewinsky scandal and so evangelicals were responding to that it wasn't a presidential election year uh, it would have been a midterm election year coming up i suppose because every two years is one um, but uh, but they were really just speaking to the cultural moment 
Um, but, but although that was a Southern Baptist resolution, I think what, what I wanted to call attention to, what I'm aiming for is understanding, not inflammation. <laughs> Again, I may be hitting the mark or maybe not. But, but what I, the reason I wanted to, uh, to bring that to mind, although it's a Southern Baptist resolution, this was the standard position of evangelicals. Not only in 1998, but really for decades. This was part of the thinking, part of the talking points, part of the motivation that governed voting decisions for evangelicals for decades. And so, uh, you know, for, for others, obviously, um, that message changed. They said, we're not voting for the person, we're voting for a platform. Uh, you know, hold your nose and vote. Uh, vote for platform, not for person. This group of voters is simply saying, we didn't make that shift. Uh, it, we're, we're evangelicals have been part of the family for a long time. Uh, character counts. We believed it then, we still believe it. And so they're voting based on character. And, and how they vote is likely to vary. As a matter of fact, on that chart we looked at earlier, some of them, um, they're not voting for Trump. They might also not be voting for Biden on the basis of character. They may write somebody in. They may um, abstain from voting for the office of president or, or what have you. Uh, any range of, uh, of outcomes of that, in other words. What I'm just saying, one of the motivations um, that hopefully we can be understanding about, even if we don't agree, and even if we vote differently, is that we've got some evangelicals still committed to that position of vo voting on the basis of character. I should say, by the way, also in 1998, as that was the, even, the standard evangelical position, um, some of the evangelical leaders that we still hear from today said publicly really similar things, although not in the form of a resolution and with more brevity, um, but you could go back and look through the annals. If you want to search uh, online, you'd find uh, Franklin Graham, Jim Dobson, and other evangelical leaders who were essentially of that same mind to say character counts. And some, some of our brothers and sisters are still voting on that basis. The third um, kind of evangelical voter, I've, I've just characterized here or categorized here as those who are voting based on compassion. That's probably, again, a real overgeneralization, but as I'm trying to put it in three categories, I had to paint with a really broad brush. But as you go back to the things I mentioned last week as an example, to say, here's a, here's a short list of moral concerns that Christians bring into the public square, um, that, that for these voters, that fourth one about caring for the poor and needy and marginalized probably is the one that resounds most loudly. And perhaps the one that they think Christians have been um, not loud enough, uh, perhaps, about in, in uh, times past um, or what have you. But in other words, uh, they, they would think that um, for them, the concern that Jesus had uh, for those people who were sort of the outcasts, that, uh, those who we said, you know, the, the poor and the hungry and those who were in prison, as, in as much as you did it for the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me, for example. As he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, you know, that kind of compassion, he's the one who really loved his neighbor. Th these voters are going to really have that, that uh, call 
to care and compassion resounding most loudly in their head. And that's going to dictate their voting decisions and alignment. Um, again, that's a, all of those are real overgeneralizations. But, but, but at least part of what I'm trying to do is to say, out of our own holy book, Okay. What I, and and out, out of our own short list of things that, that really I think we can agree ought to matter to us. Um, as I said last week, we might agree on the ends, but disagree on the means to achieve those ends. Because here's, here's the truth. I think this has always been the truth, and it's going to become the tr- it's going to be more and more the truth. The truth is that Christian values, the gospel does not fit neatly into political categories. It just doesn't. We have to, I mean, when I vote, I've got to decide where mine fit, right? I've got to make a decision, but it does not fit neatly um, in, in political categories as they're presented to us in the way of political parties. And it, my suggestion to you would be, it's gonna, they're going to fit less and less well as the, as the uh, right wing goes farther right, as the left wing goes farther left which is kind of the way the movement is, is happening between the political parties. And, and Christians ought to find themselves in that sort of environment, less and less comfortable identifying squarely with one or the other. And that ought just to give us, a, a, again, a measure of humility to know, um, Lord, I don't see this. I don't see this clearly. I don't see the circumstances I'm, I'm living in the middle of clearly, but I don't see the future at all. And um, I'm, I'm doing the best I know how, as faithfully as I know how, with this, as a steward of the vote I've been given. So Lord, would you guide me and then be gracious uh, to cover my weakness and the weakness of all the people that are being elected into office. And so what's the... What's the response then to, so how do we, besides trying to be understanding, uh, at least of different viewpoints, even as we disagree with those other viewpoints, um, what else do we need to do to really prepare to live at peace with all people as much as it depends on us? Well, I'm going to say, um, not uh, sort of related to what I said earlier about kind of positioning ourselves as paramedics, uh, that what we ought to do in a figurative sense is prepare to set up a hospital for a wounded nation. The nation is already wounded, but we need to prepare to set up a hospital for, the wound, for a wounded nation uh, rather than inflicting more wounds. Let me illustrate with this uh, story uh, as I close. This is a true story. During the American Revolutionary War, the Quakers in North Carolina played um, actually a memorable role in the area that's now Greensboro. It was just Guilford County, I suppose, at the time. I don't know that there was a township, but in Guilford County. The Quakers opposed violence as a matter of principle. That was one of their shared convictions. Um, and so th- th- they, they, um, they, they opposed the revolution in principle also on the basis that they, they believed, as we read in Romans 13 last week, that, um, 
the government was instituted by God and they, they, they had not been convinced that the colonist rebellion against the British crown was yet justified. Now, that was actually a, a, a common debate among Christians. Christians had to work through that one over a, quite a period of time to even come to the point where many supported the revolution. But they didn't support the war in principle, but they didn't su support violence in general, and so they did not participate um, in military service. They would not, for example, enlist in uh, the militia in North Carolina, and they were allowed that exemption from service in the militia, but they actually had to pay extra taxes in, in order, uh, sort of in exchange for that exemption. So in other words, whatever their service would have paid for, uh, they had to pay for financially by not serving. Well, in 1781, a small battle in the whole scope of the American Revolution, small battle took place at Guilford Courthouse or near Guilford Courthouse. It's called the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. And even though the Quakers maintained a neutral position on the war itself, some of their homes were robbed and livestock killed by both British and American forces. And when the battle was over, both sides had wounded soldiers on the battlefield, and both sides appealed to the Quakers to help care for their wounded. You're following, you're following the setup to this, right? As people who, they didn't want the war to happen in the first place. If they had had their way, there wouldn't have been a war. Certainly, if they had had their way, it wouldn't come to their backyard. But both sides appealed to the Quakers to help care for their Wounded, And in fact, here's another fascinating element of the story, is that the, the American forces at Guilford uh, Courthouse were led by Nathaniel Green. I, I believe it's Nathaniel Green after whom Greensboro is actually named to this day. But that's not the fascinating part. The fascinating part is Nathaniel Green was a former Quaker who had been put out of the fellowship when he became involved in uh, military meetings as, as the revolution was sort of brewing in the years prior because they were, they were decidedly non-combatants. By the way, it would be important for me to say, I'm not at all, by, by using this illustration as an analogy, I'm not at all making a case for uh, pacifism, that, that Christians need to be pacifist. In fact, I believe the opposite is true, that it is uh, appropriate and honorable for Christians to serve in military service and law enforcement and so forth, um, and uh, per particularly in the participation in just wars or what have you. So I'm not making a case for pacifism. I'm simply, simply saying these people had this as a deep conviction and they were consistent in living it out. And one of the things they did was people who then got involved in the military, they put them out of the fellowship, out of the community. Nathaniel Green was one of those former Quakers, now an ex-Quaker. He, he comes back leading the American forces right in his own backyard and appeals to the very people who put him out of fellowship to help care for the wounded. And so with, with, with all of that, even with all of that, the Quakers put aside their personal grievances, personal opinions, and they set up hospitals to care for nearly 250 British and American soldiers. Some of those soldiers had smallpox, uh, which infected two of the Quaker caregivers, one of whom died 
So put all that together. I mean, you know, again, there's people who oppose the war, refuse to participate in the war, were personally harmed by the war. And yet they ministered peaceably to all who were in need, even at cost of the very life of one of them. That strikes me as very timely for us today. Uh, Again, I'm not predicting, expecting, uh, or uh, certainly not hoping that there's any kind of armed conflict awaiting us in November or December or the start of the year. I'm, I'm using this strictly as an analogy, but to say we will have a wounded nation. And what I think ought to be the posture and the response of the church is to minister healing rather than injury that we would build hospitals, as it were, for a wounded nation, rather than taking out our sledgehammer uh, to tear down uh, the household, if you will, of our, those we've identified as our opponents in this whole political domain. Well, how that might apply to you or me depends in part about where we are, where we fit within those different Uh, sort of categories of voters, who we might be inclined to feel animosity toward. Because when things don't go our way, we tend to cast blame. And and part of what I'm wanting to get on our radar is we're going to feel that impulse just to turn in, in our hearts or even with our eyes and maybe even out of our mouths to say to other Christians, if you had only voted this way, if you had only done this, that, or the other, things might not have turned out this way. And rather than casting that blame, uh, that we, we live together peaceably with a measure of understanding with those who are in our fellowship so that we can live peaceably and graciously and restoratively uh, with all of those in our community. May God make it so uh, and prepare us to represent Jesus in his name faithfully in the months ahead. Let's bow together. Well, Lord, you, you know, again, our own hearts better than we do, and you know the circumstances we're walking into. And so, um, God, we, we just lay all that before you and pray by a dynamic, supernatural, powerful work of your Holy Spirit that you would, that you would put in the hearts of people, your people, called by your name, that you would put in our hearts a deep love for one another, a graciousness toward one another, compassion toward one another, that we would be understanding even while we disagree. And Lord, um, beyond that, would you just show us practical ways, planned and unplanned ways, how we can put aside and lay at the foot of the cross our animosity, our hostility, bitterness and anger, wrath, that we, that we lay that down at the feet of Jesus and step forward as people who, as much as it depends on us, will live peaceably with all people. Make us instruments of healing and of restoration. We believe in times of crisis is when we can find Uh, the most help, because that's when we need it the most. 
Would you do that for us and through us in the lives of others? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.